This morning, we continue our sermon series, Sacred Ordinary Life, reminding ourselves of those parts of our daily living that seem mundane, but are actually infused with the holiness of God's presence. Today, we are going to explore a brief passage from the Psalms, and as Mark framed for us so well at the start of our service, we're going to reflect on how this piece of poetry might offer us something to think about in the context of community and friendship. And so I invite you to listen now for a word from the Lord from Psalm 133. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has ordained his blessing, life forevermore. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God of our lives, we give you thanks for the gift of this day. And as we listen this morning for the word that you have for us, silence within us any voice but your own. Speak to us and allow us to hear. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. This week, I was re-reminded of one of the legacies of legendary University of North Carolina basketball coach, Dean Smith. Instrumental to Dean's style of coaching was a habit that he developed among his players known as point to the passer. It meant that in every game, in every practice, in every trial run, a person who scored a basket was required to point to the teammate who had passed them the ball, acknowledging that teammate's contribution to the play. The practice of point to the passer became so effective in Smith's coaching that he took it a step further. If a player received a pass, but he missed the layup, he pointed to the passer. If a player received a great pass and made the basket but was fouled on the shot, he still acknowledged the teammate from whom he had received the ball. Smith's intense focus on teamwork has its roots far back in his coaching career. When he first started coaching basketball, Smith told the story of coaching a player from Air Force who shot the ball every time he got it. He never passed. And during a pickup game of practice, Smith became so frustrated with this player's sense of individualism that he pulled all the other players off the court. And he said, okay, play by yourself. Befuddled and yet still clearly missing the point, the player asked Smith, well, who's gonna take the ball in bounds, sir? Shaking his head in exasperation, Smith looked at the player and said, well, I guess that's progress. At least now you know it takes two people anyway. <laughs> Dean Smith knew 
that effective teams are not just a collection of talented individuals, but are a group of people who understand their interdependence and who act on the court as if their success depends on one another. As I thought about this story of Dean Smith, I couldn't help but wonder if it resembles something of the picture that God has in mind for this enterprise that we call the church. That we would publicly acknowledge our interdependence and act as if our success as human beings and as followers of Jesus Christ is highly dependent on one another. In our psalm today, we read how good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Psalm 133 is a part of a category of psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. And so it was community literature that the Israelites would sing back and forth to one another as they made their way up to Jerusalem. Pilgrims from all over the world would come to Jerusalem, to the temple, to celebrate holy festivals together and to worship. And as they traveled, they would sing these psalms antiphonally or responsively back and forth along the way. Singing these psalms or prayers out loud with each other was a way of speaking life to each other, of showing up for one another, of recognizing their interdependence and their interdependence with God. So joyful was this experience of pilgrimage, united not by blood or by choice, but by covenant relationship with God, that the psalmist says, it is like precious oil on the head, running down the beard, flowing down the beard of Aaron. This image of oil poured down the head and the beard of Aaron comes from Exodus 29, in which Aaron is anointed priest of Israel. In the social world of ancient Israel, oil was poured on top of someone's head as a sign of hospitality and blessing. The oil was often scented and it gave off a rich fragrance and aroma, signaling to anyone who was in no shot that an extravagant blessing was taking place. It was a joyful, cheerful act to pour oil on someone's head. And so God chose this act of pouring oil over the head of another person to be the act that God's prophets used to ordain priests and kings. Therefore, this image of oil being poured over the head of Aaron is one that the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem would have been familiar with. And so the psalmist uses it to describe what Christian community feels like when God's people live together in unity, in that kind of joyful interdependence that Dean Smith practiced with his players. When we live and act as if our success as human beings and Christian followers is dependent on one another, the psalmist says it is like the blessing of abundant oil poured down over Aaron the priest. Part of what this also means is that the psalmist is saying that when we act out our interdependence, we become like priests to one another. 
The idea that our relationships are marked by sacred abundance. And we mediate to one another something of the mysteries of God. We remember that we are set apart for service. And that we represent something of the address of God to one another. And we live interdependently. The psalmist says our lives feel good and right. And they are overflowing with a sense of God's abundant presence. If you are at all familiar with the 12-step community, the recovery community, you might know something of what I'm talking about. In a recent sermon on Psalm 133, a colleague of mine, Reverend Bob Henderson, reminded me of the work of scholar Andrew Delbanco. He teaches humanities at Columbia University in New York, and he's done a lot of research and writing on the AA community. During some of his research, Andrew attended a particular AA meeting in a church basement in which he listened to a young Caucasian man dressed in crisp business attire share his story with the group. And this young man presented himself as being absolutely faultless. All of his mistakes, all of his trip-ups were, of course, due to the injustice and betrayal of other people. How they had misunderstood him and disappointed him. And Del Banco writes, he was clearly trapped in his own need to justify himself. And things would only get worse until he recognized this about his life. And while this young man was talking, a middle-aged African-American man in dreadlocks and dark sunglasses leaned over to Del Banco and he said, it's okay. I used to feel that way about myself until I achieved low self-esteem. Del Banco chuckled to himself. And he reflected on how extraordinary that moment was. That this older man's comment was more than just a clever turn of phrase. That as this young man rattled on about his need to take control over his life and to buck up and believe in himself, another man came alongside and offered to walk beside him and with him just as he was, and exactly where he was, until he got to a better place. I wonder who has done that for you? Who in your life has seen past your carefully manicured and managed outer self to the reality of your life? and offered to walk with you as you slowly embraced the person that you could become. Has a school teacher or maybe a youth pastor seen past your silly or disruptive adolescent behavior, your self-consciousness, your feelings of unworthiness to the person that you could be, or maybe a coach who has never let you settle for a lesser version of yourself by pushing you further than you thought you were capable of or by being impatient with your mediocrity? 
or maybe a parent, a parent who would not give up on you or your potential, no matter how hard you worked to get them to give up. Who has come alongside you and accompanied you on the journey? And perhaps more importantly, who is doing it now? Who is cheering you on? Who recognizes your God-given value and functions for you like a priest, mediating God's grace? Which is also to say, whose team are you on? For whom are you serving as an encourager and a friend and a guide? As God's people, we have the privilege to serve as a vessel of God's grace and God's mercy, to come alongside those with whom we do life together. And this is far more than religious cheerleading, than sort of a Norman Vincent Peale, the power of positivity, or Joel Osteen's living your best life now. This kind of accompaniment is sacred spiritual practice. In fact, the leaders of the early church, particularly the Apostle Paul, will pick up on the psalmist's understanding of friendship and community and use it to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, who comes alongside us in our lives and encourages us and guides us and is present with us. And so when we do the same, we mediate something of the presence of God to other people. And so coming alongside another to comfort and to encourage, to strengthen, to be present, is sacred spiritual practice. I think so often one of the great temptations of religion is to think of the Christian faith really as an individual enterprise. To think that while we gather together for worship in a building with lots of other people, that Christianity is really something that we believe for ourselves that secures us salvation later. In other words, sort of a, if the church helps you with your personal relationship with God, great. If not, I know a terrific brunch place that serves until 11. <laughs> but you and I both know the church is so much more than that. When I travel on an airplane, there's always a moment in which somebody learns that I'm a pastor. It's a deeply frightening moment. <laughs> I'm led to usually interpret dreams or say long prayers. I really just wanted to read my book. But often somebody wants to tell me a long and very elaborate story about how they used to go to church, but now they just find God in the sunset. And if I'm honest, it takes a lot of my pastoral energy not to sigh deeply. And not because I don't see God in nature. I do. I consistently see the goodness of God in God's creation. The mountains and the sunsets of Colorado, the Texas Hill Country, those are holy and sacred and God-filled places in my life. And I know they are for so many of you as well. It has been wonderful throughout the summer to see so many of you post your pictures of your sacred, ordinary life, including sunsets and mountains, places of holy significance to you. 
But I often want to sigh because finding God in the sunset is not the whole Christian story. It's not even an account of voluntary society of people who share the same ideas or values. The Christian story is a story of community, of people gathered together in worship and service of the living God who are being the church with and for one another. When we act out our interdependence, when we share life with other people in meaningful ways, we are being the church. We are functioning like priests, mediating the presence of God with and for one another. And that goodness is like that oil that flows down the beard of Aaron. A professor of mine called this interdependent relationship holy friendship. That is the people outside of our immediate families and partnerships who accompany us on the journey. Greg Jones, who is the Dean at Duke Divinity School, describes holy friends as those who challenge the sins we have come to love, affirm the gifts we are afraid to claim, and help us to dream dreams we would not otherwise have. Those who challenge the sins we have come to love, affirm the gifts we are afraid to claim, and help us dream the dreams we would not otherwise dream. This week I was reminded of something of what that kind of friendship looks like. Jerry and Jane McManus are longtime participants in the life of this Christian community. Jerry is here this morning in his usual pew right here at the front. Jerry's wife Jane recently passed away after a long battle with Alzheimer's disease. We celebrated Jane's life and we gave glory to God and thanksgiving for her life here in the sanctuary. And do you know where Jerry was the day after the funeral? He was with friends. The day after his wife's passing, Jerry was at brunch with friends. Why? Because holy friendship reminds us who we are and whose we are and accompanies us, particularly in some of the hardest moments of our lives. Just like those Israelites who called back and forth to one another over dinner, on walks, dropping off soup when someone is sick or out of the hospital, that conversation over the phone about little everyday things, those are the moments in which we speak God's good news to one another and we become good news for the world. Duke Divinity School professor Kate Bowler has a wonderful interview on her podcast this week. I commend it to you with anesthesiologist and Surgeon General of the United States, Admiral Jerome Adams. She and Jerome talk about a variety of topics, one of which is how prayer and presence that offered authentically can be deeply healing, not only to the soul, but also to the body. One really interesting thing that Adams points out is that research tells us that cultures across the world that live the longest have a stronger sense of community. They are those people who gather together, who lift one another up. And he tells Kate something else really interesting. He tells her that if you have three friends outside of your immediate families and partnerships who you can call when you are down, 
or with whom you can share the good news of your life, that you actually have several more years of life expectancy compared with someone who doesn't have people that they can reach out to or connect with. As Mark said at the beginning of our service, who's in the call log of your phone? You, of course, know what the trouble with all of this is, don't you? Meaningful community and holy friendship takes time and intention. These days, I think our most valuable asset is time. As we grow older, time seems to go more and more quickly. And in our daily living, most of us feel like we never have enough of it. And I also think most of us, myself included, have very good intentions. And yet we know that it is so hard sometimes to find the time, to write the note, to pick up the phone, to prepare the meal, to make the visit. And we also know that you cannot microwave deep relationships. You cannot do meaningful friendship or community in a hurry because you can't listen in a hurry, because you cannot show up for someone else in a hurry. And so holy friendship and community often means that I will have to give something up to make space for something else. I will have to sacrifice something that's a priority for me in order for me to make space for you. A friend of mine reminded me this week of a story that relationship researcher and therapist John Gottman tells about a moment that he has with his wife. He's lying in bed one night and he's finishing a book and he has about 10 pages left of this really exciting murder mystery. And he thinks, okay, I'm just gonna get up super quick, I'm gonna brush my teeth, and then I'm gonna get all settled back in bed so I can really focus and finish my book. So that's what he does. He gets up and he goes into the bathroom and as he's walking down the hallway, he sees his wife in front of her dresser and she's brushing her hair. And he notices that she looks really sad. And John says that his first thought is, just keep going, just keep going. How many of you have had a moment like that? That moment when you walk past someone and you think, oh, they really look like they could use someone to come alongside them. And then you think, avert your eyes, avert your eyes. Or you look at the caller ID on your cell phone for that friend or that person, and you know they're going through a lot right now, and you think, I just don't have time. <coughs> Gottman argues that small moments like these are crucial for building trust and meaningful relationship. He calls them sliding door moments. And he argues that when we don't walk past the door, that when we choose to show up and connect, we build trust. And we participate in the kind of meaningful community that the psalmist says creates rich and abundant life, like oil flowing down the beard of Aaron. And so it makes me want to ask again, 
Whose team are you on? And who is on your team? Because we all need it. Just like Dean Smith taught his players, you cannot play by yourself. And because the church is not something we go to, it's not a building as important as that is. It's not a music style as important as that is. The church is not even a mission or a particular ministry project as essential as all of those are for the expression of our lives together. The church is something that we are. It is something that we do. We are, hard to believe, about halfway through the summer. Many of us are beginning to feel that downward slide into the fall. So I wonder if you might take the time that we have remaining in the summer to consider where and how you're showing up for somebody else and who's showing up for you. Beyond a member of the staff or a pastor, for whom will you be a priest? Mediating something of the presence of God. And who might you allow to do that for you? For in that moment, you will know that life is good and that it is right. And that holy friendship and interdependent community is like being covered up with the full blessing of God. All thanks be to God. Amen.